We are continuing our study tonight of Luke, the 18th chapter. It is a chapter that calls for us to take a closer look at ourselves. There is an essence of self-examination that is required to consider whether or not we truly depend upon God, like the persistent widow who is described in the first few verses of the chapter, or to consider whether or not we recognize that we are sinners who stand in need of the forgiveness that only God can afford, like the tax collector in the parable of the publican and the Pharisee in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Scripture is filled with passages that encourage self-reflection. I mentioned this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. There are implications of that statement. It implies that I have the ability to look closely at my own behavior, and it implies that I have the ability to measure my behavior with that which is set forth as the standard in Scripture. And so it reminds me that God has a plan, and I can look at God's plan, and then honestly evaluate myself to see whether or not I match what God would have me to do. And so we're going to spend just a few minutes this evening continuing our discussion of learning from the Lord about self-image, and in particular, having looked at the idea of our dependence upon God from the parable of the persistent widow, and then the idea upon our sinfulness from the parable of the publican and the Pharisee, to think about those things that matter most. I want you to look at verses 15 and following as we continue. The text says, Then they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. One of the most important components of proper self-image is to recognize things as valuable that God declares to be valuable. Every single person here has something in their life that they love. Many of those things are fitting and proper. If you are married, God expects you to love your spouse. If you are a parent, you should love your children. We're supposed to love the church just like Jesus loved the church. There are a variety of things that should capture our attention, things that we should count as valuable, things that are significant. But as you well know, it's very easy for us to count things as valuable that are not truly valuable. And perhaps the way that we spend our time the things that we engage in provide us with a good idea of what we count to be the most important. 
On this occasion, the disciples basically served to screen individuals from getting before Jesus. There were some who were bringing young children before him. They wanted Jesus to touch them, perhaps even to provide some sort of blessing to them. But these individuals kept that from taking place. Verse 15 is very clear. They also brought infants to him that he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now the text is silent regarding the thought process of the disciples, but there is a strong implication that these individuals felt like they were doing Jesus a favor. There is the idea that they felt as if his time would be better spent with more pressing matters. Perhaps they believed that the children who were being brought to him were beneath him. Now at this juncture, I would like to remind you that Luke focuses on those that are often described as outcasts. That those that receive very little attention, particularly in the ancient world, are actually exalted throughout the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus' attention toward those individuals that are often viewed as outcasts is actually featured throughout Luke's gospel account. Now, children being one example of that. This is not the only time in Luke's account in which that's the case. Look at chapter 9 in the book of Luke. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 46. The text says, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you will be great. Children are used to illustrate a point about rising from humility to greatness. That was contrary to the societal expectations of that day. There are things in Luke's account about women that you would not expect to find in an ancient source. For example, look at chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance." If you ever wondered how Jesus and his band of apostles subsisted during the various itinerant ministries, when they would go from place to place, how did they make it? How did they eat? Where did they stay? Luke's passage provides an answer to that. There were benefactors, individuals who provided for their needs. And Luke is very specific about those who did that? He says these were women, some of whom actually followed and accompanied Jesus and the apostles throughout portions of his particular ministry. Luke is the only 
gospel author who provides that detail to us. It fits the point that he's driving home. Jesus did not just come to die for the Jewish male. Jesus came to die for women, for children, for Jew, and for Gentile. You'll find more of an emphasis in Luke's gospel on Jesus' relationship with the Samaritans than you will in any other New Testament work. In Luke chapter 9, for example, in verse 51, Jesus is going from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he has determined that he will go and face the fate that awaits him. And in order to get from one point to another, he decided to go through Samaria, which was an area that many of the Jews would frequently avoid. And the text says in verse 51, it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face and they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. You know about the animosity that existed between Jew and Gentile. This could have served to stoke that fire. But Jesus, rather than being insulted by the rejection of the Samaritans in this village, does not allow his apostles to call down fire from the heavens, but simply calms them and moves on with the work to another village. And then perhaps in one of the most surprising moments of the gospel account, you find the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, the last individual that you would expect who would be a good neighbor to the one who fell among thieves. So in Luke's account, you find children and women and the Samaritans, and then of course even the tax collectors being featured prominently, and not in a negative light, but in a positive one. We've already mentioned in Luke the 18th chapter, the tax collector who beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And there's a good chance that you also remember another tax collector. As a matter of fact, a fellow who's called a chief of the tax collectors, a man named Zacchaeus, the one who longed to see Jesus and climbed up in the tree, the one to whose house Jesus went, the one to whom Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. In our passage in Luke, the 18th chapter, individuals tried to bring children to Jesus for a blessing. The disciples stopped them because they did not have the same values as Jesus. What about you? Do you value the things that God values? In this passage, it seems that they put a premium on some individuals over others. And we have a problem with that in our society today as well. A man's worth is not based upon the color of his skin. It is not based upon the occupation in which he engages. It is not based upon the relationships that he has with others who are popular or who are prominent. 
Every single one of us is valuable because every single one of us is made in God's image. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. And then of course if we're asking ourselves the question, do we truly value what God values? Perhaps we should ask whether we value the spiritual more than the physical. Because that seems to be Jesus' point in verse 17. If you'll notice, the text goes on to say, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. What's he getting at there? Little children have a willingness to accept as truth certain things that others who have been impacted by the difficulties of the world reject. We become prideful. We become arrogant. We become puffed up. We challenge the simple statements of truth that Scripture provides to us with what we think is best. And when we do so, our own physical abilities are placed above what God has revealed for us in Scripture. When this passage addresses us, it addresses various aspects of our psyche. Do we truly depend upon God? Do we depend upon Him like the persistent widow, going in prayer over and over and over again, knowing the God who desires justice, the God who loves mercy, is the God who will grant our request? Do we truly recognize our standing before Him? Do we realize that we are like the tax collector sinners? And so rather than boasting before God and before others, we stand afar off and we ask God to be merciful to us who are sinners. And then, of course, this question, do we value what God values? There's one other question in this section that I'd like for us to dwell upon for just a moment. Will you give up everything for God? That's easier said than done, isn't it? But that's what we find when we study the account of the rich young ruler. Look at the passage beginning in verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. There are several things about this encounter that are vital for our understanding. 
The question that this individual asks of Jesus is the right question. He understands what he ought to be asking. When he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He has asked the most important question. There are a lot of questions that you can be concerned with. There are a lot of things that can captivate your attention. There are a lot of things that you can dwell upon. But the question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What matters is not the end result of the things that we face upon this life, physically speaking. What matters is where you will spend eternity. And so this man asks the right question. So he's on the right track, at least at first. But then we're taken aback by Jesus' response in verse 19. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. We know, of course, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is a member of the Godhead. And so perhaps we're confused by his response upon this occasion. You could look at this in a couple of ways. It is entirely possible that Jesus is not yet ready to fully reveal who he is. He does not want the attention and the distraction that that would cause for his ministry. And so he deflects the approach of this individual on this occasion. Or you could look at it from this perspective. Jesus perhaps is asking this man if he really and truly understands what he's asking. Why do you call me good? Do you know really and truly that I am God, that there is one? Regardless, Jesus tells him in response to his question, you know the commandments. Now why does he do that? Because he is emphasizing the necessity of obedience. Now obviously at this juncture during the ministry of Jesus, he lived under the law of Moses. But whether we are talking about the patriarchal covenant that God had with Adam and Noah and Abraham, or whether we are talking about the Mosaic covenant that Jesus lived under, or whether we are talking about the Christian covenant that you and I live under, God has always dealt with man on the basis of obedience. God has a law and He requires man to yield His will to the will of God. That is true whether we're talking about Noah or Abraham or Moses or Jesus or us. God has a plan and demands, requires that we obey. Which is why the book of Hebrews says in chapter 5 and verse 9 that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all them who obey Him. So he brings this idea of keeping commandments up and then he goes on to list the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And these key components of the Ten Commandments were things that the rich young ruler had been practicing from his youth. All these things, verse 21 he says, I have kept from my youth. I have done what you are asking me to do. But I would remind you that Jesus is able to look beyond the surface 
And so he looks beyond the surface of the life of the rich young ruler, just as God who knows our hearts looks beyond the surface of our life. And he is aware of those things that stand between us and him. And so in this passage, you have Jesus addressing the real problem that this very moral young man had. Verse 22, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Luke's account in this regard is a bit briefer than the other Gospels. It says of the young man when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. We know from other accounts that he went away from Jesus at this moment. There are things in our lives that can become hurdles. Things that can stand between us and God. Things that can become in one way or another an idol. Something that we desire more than anything else. It can be the pursuit of wisdom. It can be the pursuit of pleasure. It can be the pursuit of affirmation. It can be the pursuit of a position. It can be a variety of things. But in many instances, it is indeed the love of money. Which brings me back to the original question. Will you give up everything for God? Not some things, not a few things, but all things. If there is something in your life that stands between you and salvation, will you give it up? Perhaps it's tradition. Perhaps it's pride. Perhaps it's arrogance. Perhaps it's your strength. Perhaps it's your wealth. Scripture does not tell us that wealth is bad in and of itself. When considered properly... It is something that can be used for good. It is a fitting and good thing for an individual to be able to provide support for his family. It is a fitting and necessary thing for an individual to be able to provide support for the work of the church. It is a fitting and a good thing for an individual to be able to provide for the services properly rendered by one's country. All of those things involve the necessity of working and earning a living and being able to use money to provide for the things that are needed. But there is a difference in using something that is designed for a purpose properly and misusing it. In the rich young ruler's case, the individual had become self-sufficient. He did not need what God had to offer. 
And many times in our lives, this becomes true as well. And so we must search our own hearts. We must consider in our own lives whether we're willing to give up not just some things, but everything for God. Watch why this this is necessary. Look at verses 24 and following. The text says, And when Jesus saw that, that is the reaction of the rich young ruler, he became very sorrowful. He said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, These things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Now just a brief aside. There are some who have tried to make this passage of Scripture a bit more palatable by trying to argue that there was an ancient gate in the city of Jerusalem called the Needle's Eye. The truth of the matter is there is no record of any such thing before the 10th century, which probably indicates that the individual who first promoted that idea was trying as hard as you and I might be trying now to understand exactly what it is that Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is saying is not meant to be understood in a literal way. What he is saying very simply is this. If you think that you can get a camel through the eye of the needle, that's how easy it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because those who are rich and have need of nothing do not think they need God. In their eyes, they are self-sufficient. No one can touch them. And what Jesus is saying on this occasion is that this individual who is allowing his wealth to stand between him and God must be willing to give that up. Jesus said in verse 27, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. I hope that when we read a passage like Luke, the 18th chapter, it will cause us to honestly evaluate our own lives. That's what Scripture is supposed to do. It is supposed to cause you to stop and think. Am I living in accordance with what God's Word teaches? Do I truly depend upon God like the persistent widow? Do I truly recognize that I stand in need of the mercy of God like the tax collector? Do I value what God values? Do I place a premium on the things that God holds dear and significant? And of course, am I willing to give up not just some things, but everything for God?
Learn from the Lord. In this case, about self-image.